Our scripture today is going to be John uh, chapter 12, verses 37 through 50. In reading, just to set the context, I'm going to read the second part of verse 36 as well. But we, we get to work and look um, deeply into 37 through 50. I'll read, um, then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll jump right in it, okay? <clears throat> so if you're there, John 12... 36b and on to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Father, I uh, thank you for your incredible loving kindness and goodness towards us. You know I stand here today uh, dreading being an agent of hardening. Your word sometimes harden, hardens hearts. Father, I pray that this message, this word, coming from you would be today an agent of softening, would be a word that would meet hearts that are ready to welcome it, that are fertile soils, would produce faith that bears fruits, not sterile faith that acknowledges but does not act nor love. And only you can do that, Father. Only you have the power to open eyes, to soften hearts, 
to cause ears to hear. I pray that you would send your spirit and that uh, not only would empower me to speak prophetically into your people's hearts and minds, but also that you would transform all the hearers according to your word. You would sanctify them. I depend upon your spirit. I ask for the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you in Jesus' name for everything that you do, have done, and will do on your children's behalf for the glory of Jesus and our joy. In his name I pray. Amen. All right, deep, deep, deep text today. This is a stunning text. It's one of those that forces you to meditate upon the eternal nature and plan of God. There is no hiding from it today. It's a message that tells us that God Himself has planned and hardened people's hearts. It is at times much more than we can bear. And with naked eyes, carnal fleshly eyes, we cannot bear this truth. It just does not resonate with our souls. We want God to be an equal opportunity redeemer. We are Americans. We live in a democracy. We, we fight for liberty, for all, equal rights. And that just not reach our sinful, carnal souls in a good way. We have to wrestle with the fact that God does not owe rebellious people, sinners, anything. And just the fact that He chooses to set His affection upon some should be stunning to us. Because if He had given everybody justice, if He had passed everybody over for mercy, but given everybody what they deserve, God would still be beautiful and holy and righteous and just in enforcing His law and bestowing his giving, exercising His punishment upon sinners. But throughout eternity, He has decided to display His mercy, to show His glory in the redemption of sinners. And He does it all not based on any merit that sinners would have. He does it all without owing anybody anything, but He does redeem sinners. He accomplished redemption. He accomplishes redemption not only through a great cost, the life and death of His own beloved eternal Son. Salvation is free for us, but it wasn't for God. 
He accomplishes salvation through the life and death of His own begotten, eternal, beloved Son. And He does it for His glory and because He is loving. With that in mind, we're going to look at this all-wise God who does what He does. And we should stand in awe. We should be humbled by these words of Jesus. In the first section, John is talking. John is doing all of the talking. Jesus is in hiding. He told him a bunch of things. This is the last public dialogue that Jesus has. No more temple encounters. No more public dis discussions or debates with the Pharisees. None of that. Jesus says these things. Says the things that he said before about being sons of light. And believing in him. And then he just goes out of the scene. He's, he's out. He, he goes in hiding. We don't know who he brought with him. If he did it alone. If he just went away. If he went to the mountains. We don't know how, many, uh, how much time passes. But we know that John is doing the talking. And John starts in verse 37 saying, almost expressing frustration or accounting. He wants to, in this session, section, account for their unbelief. Because it is incredible that these people would not believe in Jesus. After all the things that Jesus had done, they still say, uh, no, no, <laughs> no, I, can't, I don't want this Jesus, I don't want this Messiah. And we'll see, we'll see why and, and how they reject Jesus. But John starts expressing almost like a frustrating tone. I would love for John to read this so he can get the tone in which he is saying this. But he says in verse 37, Though he had done so many signs before him, they still didn't believe in him. Now, Jesus raises the dead. Jesus tells a man who's been crippled for 38 years to just get up, take his bed and walk in broad daylight in front of everybody. Someone was dead. He brings the girl back to life. Then this guy comes and says, hey, my boy's dying. Uh, he's like seven miles away. Jesus says, go, he's healed. And, and then the guy's leaving. People come and they say, yeah, just about that time yesterday. Um, yeah, your son just got healed. You know, so he, bring, he heals like from distance. You know, Jesus does all kinds of things that have never uh, been done before. Just one chapter ago, not a lot of time ago, just days ago, Jesus has brought a man from the dead. Lazarus was dead for four days in the tomb, in a cave, airless cave. Jesus says, you know, roll the stone. Lazarus, come forth. You know, the body was, in, like, was decomposing already. His sister says, he is rotten. He stinks. What are you doing? She says, Martha, I told you, if you're trusting me, <laughs> I got this. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus was, like, all bound and stuff. And he comes out and he says, all right, unbind him. He was dead, decomposing. This had never been done. Jesus brings someone from the dead, broad daylight in front of dozens of people, even people from their leadership that were there to console, to, com to comfort uh, uh, Martha and Mary. And still they don't believe. 
I mean, a few pieces of fish and, and bread, and he feeds a multitude of upwards of maybe like 15,000, 20,000 people. Are you kidding me? They look at this and they say, no, he's not the promised one. He is not from God. And they reject. And John is just saying, he's done all of these things and they still don't believe in him. Now, a careful reader of the scripture, a careful student will, cannot help but say, why? Why don't they believe? Why wouldn't they believe? I don't get this. Jesus is awesome. I don't understand why they don't believe Jesus, look at everything that He has done. How much compassion He has shown to people. Look at His signs. And in searching for the answer to that question, John, I mean, we find ourselves facing John and he brings us way back in the past. 2,700 years from now, 2,700 years ago, at their time, about 700 years ago, before Jesus was born, a prophet named Isaiah wrote some things. And John quotes him right away. John quotes um, Isaiah 53, 1. You don't have to, to go there. Uh, if, you do, it's, if you go there, it's Isaiah 53, 1. And um, this is the first reason why this whole unbelief is planned. This is how we see that this is not a failure. This is not plan B. This was not calculated. We see that the unbelief of Israel is an integral part of God's eternal plan of redemption. So why didn't they believe John? 38, that's John's first answer. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Isaiah 53.1, the song of the suffering servant. Right? Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So that the words of the prophet would come true. God prophesied this. Way before. Isaiah, uh, John brings us 700 years before Jesus was born. But in the mind of God, it's 700 billion years. He had this plan the whole time. Verse 39, why didn't, why didn't they believe, John? <laughs> they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, or... For this reason, they could not believe. For Again, Isaiah said, For this reason, they could not believe. Verse 40, He has blinded the eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So first, Isaiah just tells them what happened. And then, okay, Isaiah 53, 1 it's saying that it was going to happen. It doesn't necessarily prove that God did it. But then the, the next verse, that um, next Isaiah verse that, that John quotes, says that God Himself did it. And that's from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6.10, which is a very different passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 6 is the very famous passage on the glory of God when the prophet Isaiah is brought in a vision. He is brought to the throne room of God and he sees, he sees the angels, the cherubim, flying around, covering their faces, covering their feet. And with two wings they fly and they sing one to the other. They cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he sees him on the throne. And his reaction is, Woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people who have unclean lips. And an angel comes with a coal of fire, and burning coal, and brings and, and seals his lips. And burns his lips. And then God says, your sins are atoned. Your sins are atoned for. He sees the glory of God in that vision. In the throne room. When God speaks, the ground shakes. The doors shake. At the sound of His voice, everything, creation trembles. Isaiah sees this. That's Isaiah 6. And then, that's the beginning of Isaiah in verse 10. God says, I did it. Go, Isaiah, preach all of these things. Preach the glory that you have seen. Preach this. And go make their hearts hardened. Go make their hearts hard with this message. God knew that this message would be met with unbelief. He Himself was doing it. And He sent Jesus. That is a great advice for preachers, for evangelists. The message will be met with unbelief. People love the glory of man. Flesh loves the glory of men. Flesh does not like a humble Messiah. Flesh does not like a God that is so sovereign and glorious and majestic that I have to bow to Him all the time. I want a God that I can carve, that I can make into my own image, that agrees with me in everything I do, that makes me comfortable in my own sin. That's the God I want. So we see here that this Messiah is rejected on both counts. He is too humble. He's not too glorious. The Messiah of Isaiah 53. Lord, who's going to believe this message? This is not cool, a humble Messiah. He's meek and mild. He's going to be, he's going to be pierced for my transgressions. He has nothing in him that attracts anybody. He's ugly. His face is going to be beaten beyond recognition. I don't want that Messiah. I want a warrior that's going to march on the biggest horse. And he's going to march to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Rome and he's going to destroy everything. Who's a pile of muscles and he brings a spear and a sword and he kills people. I want to see the Roman soldiers begging for mercy. That's the Messiah that I want. I don't want this, this Messiah rolling in on a donkey. That's too humble. That's the song of the suffering 
servant in Isaiah 53. But then the message also entails this glorious God that sits on the throne of the universe, that when He speaks, creation trembles, and He rules sovereignly over the universe forever and ever and ever. And He is glorious. He is holy, and He displays His glory through creation and through His Word and through His only begotten Son becoming a man, living a perfect life and living in the midst of sinful men and redeeming them through a brutal death on a cross. Oh no, that God, that God is too glorious. I don't want to have to bow to God at all times. I don't want to have to conform to His rules. I want to do what I want. I want to have my own deal, my own thing. So Jesus is rejected on both counts. He's too glorious, He's too humble. And we see that in this text. So Isaiah says, who's going to believe this? God says, in essence, no one. Because they have hardened their hearts. Go and make Israel's heart even harder. Verse 40 of John 12, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. That's heavy. That's heavy. As I stand here and preach, I know that this very statement about the glory of God, this very proclamation about how glorious this God is, how humble this God is, this Jesus is, and how He saves people, the fact that He grants mercy and repentance and grace to some and He passes over others and gives them exactly what they deserve and want. That very proclamation is known to harden hearts. Today, do not harden your heart. It is still time. You still have time. Do not harden your heart. Oh, but if God hardens people's hearts, they don't believe. They can't believe. They don't have the ability to believe because God hardened their hearts. Yes, it is mysterious. God does not... Those are just parameters. God does not explain to us how everything happens. God in Scripture proclaims from Genesis to Revelation that He is a just God, a loving God, a merciful God. He is not sinful. He cannot sin. He cannot deny Himself. So that we do know. We know that God's thoughts are higher than us. We know, uh, higher than our thoughts. We know that God is much more complex. He is infinite, eternal. We are finite. There are things that we cannot understand fully. We know those things. 
And I am not saying, oh, just have more faith, throw your reason out the door. That's not what I'm saying. There are many things that we can and should know. There are many things that we can and should understand how they work. The eternal plan of God in predestination and sovereign election is one that is mysterious, not contradictory. It is not contradictory. God is not sinful in ruling sovereignly over people's sin. Their unbelief and rejection of Jesus is guilty. Is guilty unbelief. He does not bypass their moral choice. People at all times choose what they most desire. Without any coercion whatsoever, these people of Israel are rejecting Jesus. They do not want this holy, sovereign, humble Messiah. It is what they most want, the glory of man. So they choose to go with the glory of man. They're freely choosing it. John, in, in, in John 8, he says that everyone that, that practices sin is a slave to sin. So they are enslaved by sin. Is their choice really free? It is in the sense that they choose freely everything they want. And everything they want is sin. God the real God is not in the picture. They're alienated from God. It's what's called original sin. The consequences of what happened in the garden. We are born alienated from God in darkness. God does not owe the opening of eyes. God does not owe a new heart of flesh that is capable of having affections for Him, He doesn't owe anybody that. He doesn't owe to break through people's sin and put Himself in the picture, in the real picture of now God becomes one of the choices. Even though He does not owe that to anybody, He does it for so, so many where He opens their eyes and now He becomes part of the choices. And for those who have their eyes open, He becomes so beautiful and supreme and above everything else that it is impossible to not desire Him. Because He is above it all. He is most beautiful and excellent. But He does it because He is love. And at a great, great cost to Himself. He not only does it, but He doesn't make you work for it. He gives it to you. Just given. It's free. I was lost and now I'm found. I lived in enmity against God because of my flesh. The flesh cannot submit to the Spirit. 
and does not submit to the Spirit. Living in the flesh is living at enmity against God. That's Romans 8. He overcomes that animosity, war, just through opening eyes and giving, granting people new hearts that are able to feel for Him and desire Him, to have affections for Him and to love Him. And He says, I will cause you to be careful to follow and walk on in my statutes. This verse kind of echoes Moses in um, Deuteronomy 29. He's out of the desert. He led them for 40 years in the desert. God delivers them from Egypt through a series of great miracles. And people are complaining, obviously. So Moses, in Deuteronomy uh, 29, 2 through 4, he says this, um, or the scripture says this, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. Doesn't it sound like John? He performed so many signs before their eyes and still they didn't believe. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It's an echo or John's words are an echo of this. John says all of mentions the things that Jesus has done before their eyes. Moses mentions in detail everything that God has done before their eyes. And then John goes to the human responsibility. They still did not believe. Moses goes to the other side of the same thing. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You see that? It's the same thing. They didn't believe. Why didn't they believe Moses? Oh, God has said that He hasn't given them a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Why did God do that? Why would God do that? Why doesn't He save everybody? Why doesn't He do this? He set His affections upon Israel and redeemed Israel, not because they were bigger or greater nation or more powerful than any other nation, but because He loved them. And then now, like, there's a hardening coming upon them. And then we go through the greatest treatise on what the gospel is and its implications and how it works and what God has done. The greatest letter ever written. The letter to the Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote... In Romans 11.25, he's laboring and explaining God's plan of redemption and what is happening to Israel. He's laboring to say, God has not abandoned nor didn't He keep His promises to Israel. That's not what I'm saying. But here's what's going on. Romans 11.25, he says this, I want you to understand the mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Why is he doing this, Paul? Because he is saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nation for all of these years. He's saving people from outside Israel. For this purpose, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. It's a partial hardening. A lot of Israelites, a lot of people that are descended from the 12 tribes, a lot of people that descended from people that, that, that converted to Judaism, a lot of them did not believe because God put a hardening on their hearts. Within Israel, God has called many to. But for now, Israel as a nation, Judaism as a religion, has rejected their Messiah. And they did it because God caused this to happen because for now, He's saving other peoples from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You know what that means? That means if you are His, that is what He is doing. This is why He has caused a partial hardening to Israel, the little girl, the apple of his eye, he has caused a partial hardening on them so that in the meantime he's bringing people and he's saving all of his kids from many other countries and nations and languages. He is doing that for us who are not Israelites, for us who are Gentiles. This partial hardening has a personal implication in your own lives. See the cost for God in saving you? See how heinous it is when you look at God and you, yeah, and you reject His justifying love, His saving Love and His offer of eternal life. See how heinous it is? Today, let not, let not your heart be uh, hardened as you hear about His great plan of redemption and how sovereign He is in accomplishing it, in executing it in all of His wisdom. It is okay to bow to the mystery. It is not okay to not solve contradictions. We don't have to believe in irrational faith. We're not called to. Having faith is not believe nonsense. Oh, I guess we just got to have faith. That is not what it is, but it is okay to bow to the mystery of God's eternal knowledge, eternal wisdom. It is okay. And we should we should marvel at the riches of the great knowledge of God and look forward to dive in and explore it throughout eternity, living in perfect fellowship with Him without even the presence or hindrance of sin. That's what we should long for. That all of these things, we have eternity future to figure out. In the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the Redeemer. In His immediate physical presence. 
if God had passed everybody over, he, he would still be holy and just and glorious. But he didn't. And that brings us to verse 42. And at first glance, it looks like John is taking us somewhere else because the context is hardening of hearts, non-belief, unbelief, rejection. And then all of a sudden, he says in verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from men more than the glory that comes from God. This is when, if you're reading it slow, there's, I mean, there's a nice flow there from verse 36, 37, of unbelief, rejection, hardened hearts, ears that don't hear, eyes that don't see, and then all of a sudden people are believing. Even people that would lose the most in believing, they are believing this stuff. Like, I don't understand, John. Like, what are we doing? Where are we going here? You know, this is when you stop and pray again for the gift of illumination. Because it seems to break the flow. It seems to break the flow. And, and it's like, John, okay, help me here. Um, and then you keep looking at it. And John goes on to say that they didn't confess it. They believed it, but they didn't confess it. And John gives us an in into the state of their souls, in the state of their hearts. And what is the state of their heart? Loving the glory of man. In John 5.44, Jesus says, and it's a rhetorical question. He said, and I, when I preach on John 5, I argued that it was a rhetorical question. And Jesus was really saying, you can't believe. You can't be saved. This is the question that Jesus asks in John 5.44. He says, how can you believe if you love the glory that comes from men? If you seek praise that comes from one another, how can you believe my words? The answer is, the answer is you can't. That is exactly what Jesus was telling them. You all are blind. You can't see. You cannot believe because your affections are somewhere else. You are freely choosing what you want. Your heart wants glory from men. Your heart doesn't want this. Therefore, you can't believe. Loving the glory of men is rather than the glory of God or more or above the glory of God is exactly the opposite, precisely the opposite of what saving faith is. If your greatest delight in, in the whole of your life is the glory of men receiving praise, speak well of me, be nice to me, Praise me. That is the exact opposite of what saving faith is. That is exactly the opposite of what it takes to believe. And John says that they believed. He's using the word believe, in my opinion, to express the greatest form of unbelief. A sterile faith. A faith that acknowledges these propositions, these statements, the Bible claims to be true. The hearer listens to it, and, but never takes the teachings into his or her own life. It never affects their affections, their love, 
But with their heads, they say, they know truth. And they say, yeah, yeah, it's true. I won't stop cheating on my business, but yeah, Jesus is who he says he is. I believe the Bible, cover to cover. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins. And he rose for my justification. And I live in no newness of life whatsoever. That is the highest form of unbelief. Because believing in the Bible does not solely mean... Saving faith does not solely mean... Means... Um, I acknowledge these things to be true. Yes, there is an understanding of words that are being said. That are, there is an understanding of a content, of propositions, of statements. There is a welcoming and an assent to that truth. But there's also the desire to live in light, in newness of life, in life of that truth. It transforms your heart. You can't help it but love this God and live for His glory and seek His glory. And these people are not displaying those fruits. It's a faith that bears no fruits. It's a faith that still seeks the glory of men. In the end, our allegiance to God or our faith or saving faith, it's all a matter of, it's a matter of the heart. Your faith is displayed by where your heart is. Where your heart is, there will be your treasure too. It's a matter of the affections. You have no affections for God whatsoever. How, how can you claim you have been saved? If you, don't love, if you don't love your brother whom you see, how can you love the God who you don't even see? How can you love the God whom you don't even see? At the end of the day, what matters is where your love is placed. For where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And the love of our hearts is evident, not just from our thoughts and emotions, but from the commitments and allegiances of our lives. Not only thoughts and emotions, but commitments and allegiance in our lives. Where is your allegiance? Are you living simply a sentimental life? Are you living simply an intellectual Christianity that is sterile, does not produce fruits of love? That is the highest form of unbelief. When you know truth, you say it's true, and you still reject it with your life. And I am thankful that the Holy Spirit caused John, inspired John into using this type of faith as an example of unbelief. Because it's easy for us church people to acknowledge truth. Maybe it's not easy, but it's possible. And it's a trap that we should be, of which we should be aware. And... Um, and, and this is it, that to acknowledge truth without 
trans- a transformed, sanctified life. Without making it a battle for sanctification. Without crying over your lack of repentance. It is so possible to have your, all your ducks in a row and, and spew doctrine when your life does not reflect anything whatsoever of what you claim to believe. Moving on, um, I spent a little bit more time than I, than I planned on this, so let me uh, hurry up a little bit. Then, all of a sudden, without any settings whatsoever, verse 44, he doesn't introduce Jesus back again. He doesn't say how much time has passed, who Jesus was with, who he was talking to. He doesn't tell us anything. And he, I mean, time-wise, we just don't know. Uh, Geography-wise, we don't know. We don't know if they came to him or Jesus came back. John, how do you even know? You just told us a few verses ago that that, uh, Jesus went in hiding. Did you go with him? What's happening? And John just says, verses 44 and 45, just brings Jesus back into the scene and he says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Jesus is claiming once again that he is from God, that he is with God, that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the one that God has sent to proclaim all of these things. And everything that he says, he says because God has told him to say it, and how God has told him to say all of these things, everything he preaches is under the authority of God. Many times he has said, I don't speak of my own accord, but I speak the words that my Father speaks, that my Father told me to speak. This has been the drum that he's been beating throughout his ministry. In John 10.30, he said, I and the Father are one. I am one with Him. In the end of John 5, he keeps laboring the fact that He is one in nature, in essence, with the Father. Not in persons, but in, in nature, in essence, with the Father. He does what the Father does. He's at work, so am I. I do everything that God does. This has been the drum that he's been beating. In John 14, 9, he's going to tell, he's going to tell Thomas, he's, you know, have I been with you, oh, Philip, I guess, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, same thing, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Guys, this is central to John's theology. This is central to Christianity. There is no other way to God. In 1 John, the same writer says, 1 John 2.23, he says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's a package deal. If you want God, you need Jesus. In Christianity, that's the end of the story. There is no other way. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way. All singular. I am the way. The one way. I am the truth and I am the life. People can come to the Father through any way they choose. That's not how He ends the verse. He says, No one comes to the Father but by Me. It is through Jesus and Jesus only, there is only one way. 
It is through Jesus and Jesus only that we can have fellowship with God, that we can be brought into the family of God, that we can truly know the only one true God. In Christianity, in the teachings of Jesus, there is no other way. This is central to Christianity, central to John's theology. There is no other way. Jesus is it. Then in verse 46, Jesus talks about this great, great salvation. Um, and and this, is not, this is not time bound. You know, I, I believe that John starts this section without giving us a, a geographic time uh, um, context because this is really the ministry of Jesus. This is really the work of Jesus, what he has done and accomplished for us. And this is not time bound. This is not for those people. It's not for the disciples, the, 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 the 12 apostles only and does not apply to us. It applies to us today. Today Jesus is saying this to us. This is not time bound. If Jesus is not your Redeemer, God is not your Father. If Jesus is not your Lord, God is not your Father. If Jesus is not your God, the one and only true God is not your God. Verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may no longer remain in darkness. Whoever believes in me may no longer remain in darkness. People are in darkness precisely because they're alienated from God. That is a dark existence. Because God is light and Jesus brings light, being God, being the messenger of God, those who believe in Him are freed from living in darkness, which in essence in Christian theology is a life apart from God, a life that is against God, a life that rebels against God, a life that seeks the glory of man and the pleasures of this world rather than or above the pleasures of God and the glory of God. Therefore, those who welcome Jesus into their lives receive Jesus' light, the light of God, and now there's newness of life, and they walk in light, in holy statutes, in holy affections towards God. Where there was duty or rebellion, now there is pleasure, delight, and friendship and fellowship. That is the light of God. Those who believe in Him 
Jesus is light. Those who believe in him are freed from darkness. And he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Amen. He gives us two kinds of, of unbelief. Verses uh, 47 and then 48. Let's go to verse 47 first. Um, first kind of unbelief. It's the doctrinal uh, statement of the example of those people in verse 42 and 43. There's an illustration. There's a picture there of what this looks like. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, isn't that those people? They heard the words. They acknowledged it. It did not cause any transformation of life whatsoever. They still loved the glory of man and they didn't even... I mean, this was a faith, a, sterile, a faith that was so sterile that I didn't even feel comfortable saying it was a false profession of faith because they didn't even profess it. They didn't even say they thought it was true. It was like it was a thing that they acknowledged it. They didn't even talk about it. They did. John says they did not confess it. You know, so such a sterile faith where there's only a mental acknowledgement and yeah, let's move on with our lives. So Jesus says he won't judge them. I did not come to judge the world, but just save the world. He won't judge them because he came to save them. Here we see the heart of God. That God in His mercy sent Jesus to save. Even though He knew it was going to be met with unbelief, God sent Jesus to save, not to condemn the world. And Jesus then did not judge them. But judgment, as we saw before in John 5 and even last week, judgment is, pre less, not last week, but last time I preached, um, Judgment is present just in the person of Jesus. Just by Jesus being light exposes darkness. Judgment happens automatically because Jesus comes with an offer of eternal life and salvation and redemption and justification being declared innocent and positively righteous in the courts of God forever and ever with the just judge of the universe. Jesus has that offer. He accomplishes it all. And He offers it freely to everyone who believes. And just by virtue of rejecting it, in and of itself, is be condemned. Those who believe in the Son will be saved, but those who don't are condemned already. John 3, they're condemned already. To reject Jesus' salvific love or justifying love is in and of itself to incur judgment and condemnation. Jesus didn't have to say, you are damned. His presence alone, His going to the cross alone, separated who's saved, who's not. Those who reject the saving offer, those who say, I can do it on my own, those who say, God owes me to redeem me because I'm a good person, those who say, I don't deserve 
the punishment of God. Therefore, it's not going to happen. I reject the words of Jesus. Those who hear my words, that's what he's saying. You know, and we have his word. We have his word. Called the Bible, called the Holy Scripture. Those who say the Bible isn't true, therefore I will not believe it nor live in a way that, that brings the teachings of the Bible into my life, teachings of this man into my life, and I'm going to love it with all my heart. They are condemned already, rejecting the words of Jesus is to reject God himself. And one needs spiritual eyes and ears and heart to welcome that message. So that's the first type of unbelief that is displayed here that John mentions. I heard it, yeah, there's an acknowledgement, but I, I won't live with it or for it or by it. I'm going to believe the words of Jesus. Then the one who, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. There will be a day. There will be, a, that there will be an actual legal judgment where the judge of the universe will proclaim guilty. And that will be a forever sentence. He will proclaim innocent righteous, and that will also be a forever sentence. There will be a big throne, and there will be the one who sits upon the throne. And there will be trumpets and angels and apostles and the tribes of Israel. It will be majestic and it will also be terrifying. There will be that day where an actual judgment will Take place, and that will be by the word that Jesus has spoken. It will be by the truth of the gospel. It will be by what Jesus has said, done, accomplished, purchased, and it will be by what the Lord has commanded. And He commands all men everywhere at all times to repent. And those who haven't will get what they chose to, being away from the loving presence and mercy and grace of this God that they rebelled against. And those who heard the message and welcomed it into their lives will live forever in the presence of the Lamb and will have eternity to dive into the mysteries of His eternal wisdom. Now through the end, 49 and 50. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say therefore is, I say as the Father has Hold me. Again, Jesus wraps up his public ministry, stating once again, I am one with the Father. I speak in his authority. 
You should give ears to what I'm saying, to what I'm speaking. I am from Him. I am the promised Messiah. I came to redeem. I came to carry out the commandment of eternal life. The words of my Father are in itself eternal life. Don't reject it. This is how, this is how the sentence takes place. Rejecting eternal life is in and of itself death. And the command is much more than, the command is eternal life is much more than, than a certain set of principles that you are to live by, but it's a command of eternal life is to experience the life of the world to come, the life of God, and live the life of God in you through the power of the Holy Spirit by what Jesus has accomplished, by what this man is saying to us. Believe in Him. That's how He's finishing His public ministry. From now on, He's going to be arrested, betrayed, killed. But now He's wrapping this up and those are the last public words of Jesus. I am one with Him. He commands eternal life. Take it. Live this life, welcome this life, experience this eternal life, even as you live in this sin-broken world. Do not harden your hearts. Marvel at this God who from eternity past has had a perfectly wise plan in redeeming people from all tongues, tribes, and nations. If you are a Gentile, be humbled by this message and thank Him. Be floored by the fact that He has caused a partial hardening in Israel. So that you could come in. So that in the meantime, He would accomplish your personal redemption. Do not let, do not harden your hearts today as He commands eternal life. Come. Come to Him. Love Him. It is your responsibility to repent. Because He commands us all to repent and come to Him. So come to Him. That's what He's saying today once again. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John has told us, Jesus cried out. Believe in Him, hear His words, live His words, love His words. Amen? Amen. All right. In I guess in a moment we will um, we'll sing and, and worship God with our uh, with our voices, with our singing, and um, yeah, I I would like to say uh, you know this is at least for now this is my uh, last time preaching to you at least in person. Um, I would like to thank you uh, for your love, your labor of love, your fruits of love for all of these years. Um, I love you. I'm going to miss you. I, I mean it. Um, I love you. I'm going to miss you very much. Um, I cannot believe how good and gracious God has been uh, to me uh, in all of my life. Um, and now I'm speaking specifically of these last eight years of, I mean, having a family, having uh, a Christian family, a church family, a community where we could uh, um, 
live the implications of the gospel together and fight the fight of faith with uh, all of you guys being uh, welcomed in and uh, seating under under solid teaching. You know how confused I was, Joe, when I got here and uh, how much I needed to to organize my theological furniture and uh, you were very patient with me. Um, all of you guys took my uh, immaturities at times. If I hurt you, I am very, very sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Forgive me for my lack of sensitivity sometimes and I don't know, lack of humility. Uh, I have a long list. I'm not going to go through it. Um, but from the bottom of my heart, forgive me <clears throat> for anything I may have done, I may have sinned against you. Okay? I love you guys and I'm going to miss you. Praise God.